0: This is On and Off Your Mat Podcast, episode 150 Yoga for Bendy People. Are you bendy? Does your practice sometimes leave you in pain? Or maybe you feel like more anxious or you're having trouble sleeping after practicing? And even if you want to believe that doing more yoga will help, if you're being honest, it doesn't. Well, if you can relate, today's episode is for you. For this episode, I sat down with Libby Hainsley. Libby is a doctor of physical therapy and a certified yoga therapist specializing in the treatment of chronic pain, hypermobility syndromes, and yoga-related injuries. Her book, Yoga for Bendy People, Optimizing the Benefits of Yoga for Hypermobility, explores how people with joint mobility syndromes can use the tools of yoga to support their thriving. Libby is also the founder of Anatomy Bites, a monthly membership for yoga teachers who want to learn anatomy in a fun, supportive, and relevant way. I would love to read your takeaways for today's episode, so as you listen, take a screenshot and share one of your takeaways on Instagram, tagging at on and off your Mat podcast I will, of course, reshare you, but this way, everybody will be able to read your takeaways and we can go deeper into the content of this episode and we can learn together as a community. You might also realize you are hypermobile and you never quite knew that. So if that's your case, let me know, tag me in. All right, let's get to today's episode with Libby.
1: Hi Libby. Hi Erica. Thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here.
0: So for listeners that don't know you very well or don't know you yet, can you tell us a little bit about yourself
1: and your, your good journey? Sure. I live in Asheville, North Carolina, and I've been teaching yoga since about 2005. And during that time, I got really interested in like injuries, partly my own, because I had many, many years of all kinds of stuff. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: um, that all led me to go into physical therapy. So I then went on to PT school some years later and have been practicing as a PT now for a little over 10 years. So uh, now, you know, what I do in my clinical practice is I use a lot of yoga-based kind of movement stuff, but I also do manual therapy, and I specialize in treating people with hypermobility syndromes and chronic pain, and very often those are the same people. Mm -hmm. Especially joint pain. Yeah, and myofascial pain. They're covered up with just muscle tenderness, kind of fibromyalgia-style stuff. Okay, we'll get into those details
0: in a little bit, but before we get there can you explain for listeners that don't know really what it means to be hypermobile? Like what's that term hypomobility? Or mm-hmm. I know you have a book called Yoga for Bendy People. Who are those people? What does it mean to be bendy?
1: Yeah. So bendy is a term I like to use to describe people who, you know, have generalized hypermobility, but really in the book, I mean it to be hypermobility syndromes. And so some of these you know terms are quite confusing. Hypermobility just means that a joint has more than normal range of motion. And you could have that in one joint or you could have that in a whole bunch. And when you have it in five or more, it's considered generalized hypermobility. And that's not always a problem. But when it's symptomatic hypermobility, that's when it's called a hypermobility syndrome. And there are a couple different, you know, most common ones. And that essentially describes someone who has more than normal range of motion and also has symptoms that are connected to it. And usually that's the result of a genetic difference in the collagen fibers that form our connective tissue. And that's generally what leads someone to have not only the musculoskeletal kind of symptoms that comes along with this, but a whole host of other multi-system involvement as well. So what would
0: be those other multi-system? Like, How can people know that like, maybe they're like, yeah, I have some extra range of mobility in the joints. How do they know that they have other things that might point towards hypomobility?
1: Yeah, it can be really kind of hard because once you start to study hypermobility syndromes, it suddenly seems that like everything in your life is related to hypermobility. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That may may or may not be the case, but... Some of the most common features of hypermobility syndromes would be beyond the kind of joint pain and myofascial pain and fatigue. That would be one of them, like chronic fatigue syndrome is really common. Mental health concerns, especially anxiety and panic disorders are really highly represented. Even neurodevelopmental differences are much more highly represented in people with hypermobility. Digestive issues like irritable bowel, more tendency towards autoimmunity, there's a dysautonomia is really common, which is just a dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system. So where it has trouble regulating heart rate and blood pressure and temperature and things like that. So there's lots of dizziness and heart rate issues that come along with it. And so many times people are like, oh, yeah, I've always known that I was, quote, you know, double jointed or something like that, had a lot of bendiness, but I never knew that, you know, my anxiety disorder and my digestive issues and my dizziness we're all related to that. And it's just a big light bulb moment for a lot of people.
0: Yeah, of course. And so by doing things to help with the hypermobility, are we then helping with all these other things kind of
1: automatically as cause consequence linked? I think some of the things now, but some of the things just need to be treated, you know, on their own, on their own. But once you have an understanding that they may be all related to each other, it's kind of helps put things in perspective. And helps to kind of know that you're not crazy and you haven't been Mm -hmm. making all the stuff up and just Mm -hmm. things kind of make sense more. So it's very validating for a lot of people. And unfortunately, there are not a lot of medical treatments per se for some of these issues that arise with hypermobility centers, but there are some. And certainly, you know, getting people referred to the appropriate medical providers is step one. Of course, a big number step two is that those medical providers have a clue about these conditions. And unfortunately, most (laughs) of them don't. And that's not their fault. It's an education gap, but it is a huge problem. And it leads a lot of people to be bounced around from, you know, this doctor to that one to that one, and they see tons and tons and no one's putting together the pieces. So that can be really invalidating for people and disempowering. And so a clear understanding what's going on helps empower them to make positive lifestyle changes that can really help. And so, you know, when we deal with the physical issues, the structural issues of hypermobility, what's universally important is resistance training and physical activity that helps the body to get stronger, you know, without triggering any ill effects. And very often that same process of building capacity for the structure of the body can also kind of overflow into positive benefits for mental health, because we know exercise is really good for mental health, Mm -hmm, as mm -hmm. well as um, connection with others who have similar experiences Less isolation, more community connection, as well as it can help to manage some of the dysautonomia. The more we kind of build cardiovascular fitness and capacity, that can help a lot of people with POTS, which is one of the most common forms of dysautonomia where your heart rate goes crazy when you're upright and it can be really debilitating for people. But that's one of the things that can be really helped by, you know, progressive exercise. Also, just lifestyle tips, you know, if someone, understands they have these things, then they can learn about the importance of compression garments and the use of electrolytes and salt and different things like that that can really help with some of the symptoms.
0: Yeah. So there's a big picture. It's more than can you bring your thumb to your forearm
1: <laughs> situation? Yeah, it is. It's a much bigger picture. I like to call it just a big tangled ball of yarn. That's what it. these syndromes seem to be. They have a lot of different pieces that are all kind of connected, even in some multiple different ways. So it's really interesting, but it's far more than the bendiness. You know, that's often just the tip of the iceberg for people and certainly may cause some problems for them, like they may have some recurrent strains and sprains. That's probably the most common thing, especially with yoga practitioners. They aren't like horrible, terrible injuries, but they're nagging chronic aches and pains kind of stuff. They can really impact quality of life. Now, the more severe structural issues would be dislocations, right? If someone's literally dislocating their joints, all the time, that's a more severe case. And they're probably Mm -hmm. using a mobility aid and they're using bracing and splinting and, you know, aren't going to be as likely to show up to a yoga class necessarily. But that piece is just one tiny piece of the puzzle.
0: Mm -hmm. And it's like the one that we know the most about, right? Like the range of motion in the joint. And it's the first thing we talked about within the definition as well. But what's interesting is that oftentimes people that have a natural quote unquote bigger range of motion in their joint, they are feeling really good about doing yoga because they feel successful at it and they feel like this is where they belong, but they're adding on without knowing to their discomfort, their pain, and that list of other issues we talked about. So Mm -hmm. it's interesting to see the bigger picture and realize that what you gain in the beautiful things you could do with your body in yoga maybe has bigger consequences than you realized.
1: I think for a lot of people, it does. And for a lot of people, yeah, it feels great to be successful at an activity. And that's why I think if we could do a prevalence study of hypermobility and hypermobility syndromes among yoga practitioners, but even more among yoga teachers, I think it would be kind of surprising at just how prevalent it is. Because I think myself included, you know, a lot of the issues related to my hypermobility syndrome are probably what led me to yoga seeking relief. But also I got a lot of positive reinforcement that kind of kept me in it, you know, kept me going. So it's twofold. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, they're having trouble with anxiety and sleep and physical pain and and they're looking for relief in yoga. Yeah. And
0: then they feel like they're being very successful and they're being encouraged in Mm -hmm. how good they're doing. And so they Mm want to stay and continue to practice.
1: Yeah. And a lot of them, you know, I mean, I can speak for myself. This is my experience. I had a lot of that positive reinforcement, especially in my 20s, which is when I had the most pain. And it was really confusing because I would get all this positive feedback about my kind of yoga performance or whatever in class, but I was really struggling. I had horrible anxiety and significant pain, kind of head to toe. Like I wasn't really doing that well. And so it kind of puts people in a weird position of, well, is this normal? Like, is this just what it feels like to be in a body and be practicing yoga?
0: (laughs) Yeah. So do you have any tips for teachers in the way that they cue or they encourage, like they give positive reinforcement for the physical things of like going deeper into the stretch and fuller expression of the pose? How as a teacher that's listening, how can they approach the way they speak to students or about students?
1: Yeah, I think just totally just start over. If we could just start over with how we speak about yoga (laughs) asana Mm -hmm. as teachers, that would be a great place to start. It's a lot of undoing, a lot of unlearning, and it really comes down to just remind yourself what is yoga about? What is it we're doing? Even when we go to our mats and practice asana, it's one of very many tools of yoga. And all of the tools of yoga are wanting to lead us in a certain direction, which is inward. And that's it. There is not a performance. It's not an external you know, display. And so our language should be reflecting that. And we should not ever really emphasize someone's... <laughs> split or impressive posture, because that's so misleading, not only for Mm. that person who, you know, like me in my twenties might be really struggling underneath that good performance, you know, or like performance that is very valued by the yoga culture. But it's also really misleading for the other students who think they're supposed to be working hard to try to attain that same level of mobility, when in fact, that couldn't be farther from yoga's interest. Yoga has no interest in that for human beings. And so I think we just need to be more accurate in our language about just teaching yoga. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Helping students really understand what it is that we're here to do. It's not a fitness program and it's not a performance.
0: And also... It's not a healthy goal for other students to aim to go there, knowing that it creates pain and dysfunction and all the other system. Like we should encourage people to aim for that. That kind of makes no sense.
1: It makes no sense. Exactly. And a lot of the sort of ideal forms of postures that people get in their mind aren't really attainable by most normal human beings. They're kind of outside what we should expect normal bodies to be able to do comfortably. Yeah, so that just makes people feel like they're bad at yoga. And you know, I like to always say there's just no way really to be good or bad at yoga, or if there is, it doesn't have to do with what happens on your mat. <laughs> Let's put it that way. It's not about your postures. Yeah. Yeah.
0: How about when it comes to hands-on assist? Because a lot of those
1: hands-on assists are made to help
0: you go deeper into the pose.
1: Yeah, hands-on assists is such an interesting topic. So many angles we could, you know, take on it, but it can be very problematic for hypermobile people, especially, but in the same way that our language can be misleading, the very use of hands-on assist can also be misleading because it sends a message that it's desirable to go a little farther, Mm -hmm. you know, and there are a lot of yoga, you just sort of have this perspective. Well, some people need to be pushed a little bit and it's like pushed where we're not going anywhere in yoga, except inward. That's it. There is no going anywhere. You know what I mean? These mm-hmm. postures are simply tools to go inside. That's all they are. So the use of hands-on assist to deepen postures is very misleading. Not only that, it can be really disempowering and perhaps injurious. I really can't count the number of people who have over the years, you know, reported to me the injuries they've sustained receiving hands-on assist in a mm-hmm. yoga class, you know? Yeah. you know, even when consent is granted, I think teachers need to be very mindful about what's the intention, why the hands-on assist, you know, what does it serve? How does it benefit the students? Because I think there are some ways to use hands-on assist that can be very helpful Mm -hmm. in building some body awareness and eliciting some movement from within rather than imposing movement from without. That's a very different way of using your hands, but that can be actually quite helpful. In my journey, when I learned about my hypermobility and started to modify my practice so that it felt good to practice instead of feeling bad to practice, which it had for so many years, then, you know, I started putting some boundaries around my movements in yoga class. I would go to different classes and I just wouldn't go as far into postures as I could. I just back up maybe Mm -hmm. to 75 or so percent. And sometimes a teacher would come and push me farther into the pose. And so just because I could go farther doesn't mean that there's any benefit to me to do that. And it was really frustrating because I was working so hard proprioceptively to like feel where's a different place, feel stable. And it was disempowering. It was like a violation of my boundaries that I had just worked hard to set, <laughs> but it was just done with such nonchalance, like, oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: And I personally has been injured by a very experienced and like, you know, respected teacher and you went way too far and way too fast. And it's not because my leg was able to go there that it should have gone. Like It's not because physically you could move it there, that it was a right decision, the safe thing for my body. And I tore a hamstring. Mm. Er, Yikes. Yeah, yeah. Oh. I never tried to put my leg behind my head again.
1: <laughs> well, probably, <so>. we're done. <laughs> done it was over. It was done. done. Yeah, yeah. We really just have to step way back and ask, what is it that we're trying to do with asana? Yeah, I think that modern yoga culture has just gone way overboard on asana, but we've lost track of what is it, how is it to be used to serve the goals of yoga. Because I think there are a lot of beautiful ways that it can be used in the service of kind of yoga's bigger goals. But oh yeah, we've really lost that a lot. And I think it's unfortunate.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you've talked about a few things that we can do. And I want to dig into that a little further. But before, I just want to go back to one thing we talked about and where we are being encouraged into the depth of the pose for people that are bendy, that maybe don't fully associate with hypermobile. They feel like it's a spectrum, you know? Like, yeah, I'm bendy. And I really like that about myself in my yoga practice. How can we reframe a little bit more? We talked about like the why of yoga, but Mm -hmm. if they're still clinging on to that identity, how can we reframe it so then we're able to pull back and do some of the other things that we talked about? What's the
1: self-inquiry into into this? I mean, it's a great question that you ask. It's so difficult to get out of that habit of performance. It's incredibly difficult. And I don't want to say that it's like an age thing, you know, it's not necessarily about like, quote, maturity or whatever in your practice. I'm not sure what the answer is, honestly, but I just know having been that person who for many years, despite my chronic pain related to my yoga practice, would not back off, would not. And if I had been telling my 20-year-old self, 22-year-old self to do that, I would have been like, whatever, you're crazy and old and stop, you know, (laughs) like, and I didn't. And so for 10 years, I had pain every day related to my practice. Well, it was because I was not doing a practice that was appropriate for my needs. There was just is there also
0: a practice. lack of awareness of like the link. Like I the practice creates this in my body, like there's a little uh, bit of a exactly yielding.
1: Like Yeah, I don't even want to acknowledge the fact that I hurt worse after yoga. I'm just gonna ignore that and pretend that the answer is always I should do more yoga. Cause mm-hmm. that was always kind of the answer. Oh, this. Nagging thing. I just need to do more, or maybe yeah. I haven't quite gotten the alignment right yet. So I just need to work harder, do it better, etc. And that was always a story. But when I ask a lot of people to be really brutally honest with themselves and like keep track, what is your response to the practice? For a lot of them, they realize, oh yeah, you know what? My practice doesn't actually leave me feeling better, mm. and and that's too bad because I think with some tweaks. Practice can feel really good for anybody. We just have to find Mm -hmm. the right practice that Mm -hmm. matches where they are and what their needs are. But we have to really do this very honest inquiry and reflection, not just in the moment, but for the next day and the next day after that. We have to monitor our response to the practice. Without expectation, you know, we have to step away from well, so and so, you know, respected teacher said this was good for me. Therefore, that narrative is overriding my own experience of yeah. the practice, and that happened to me for years. The narrative that was given to me by whoever I idolized or you know respected because whatever um, they were the teacher, and so whatever they said about it was the truth my own embodied experience was not the truth because I wasn't led to my own embodied experience by those teachers, right? The teachers were speaking from a place of power, not empowerment of the student. And that is a dynamic that is just so toxic, it has to change. That really hit home here for a second.
0: Yeah, it's a very different energy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm kind of letting it sink Mm -hmm. in. (laughs) <laughs> so it's about inquiry, <laughs> radical honesty about does it feel good or does it hurt me more? And then it's about building our own self-trust, empowerment, listening no matter what is being told to us by someone that we might put on a pedestal. And maybe yes. we need to stop to put those teachers on pedestal and put ourselves sure. on
1: our own. For sure. You know, if a teacher isn't guiding you to study yourself, And to be empowered and make your own decisions based on your, you know, internal locus of control, then it's going to be like, I just don't get it. It's an inappropriate power dynamic at that point. Because, you know, especially when you're teaching adults, I'm going to assume that we're talking about adults. These are grown people. Yeah. And we need to be giving the power back to our students, always guiding them, right? Giving them some structure. That's what our job is there to teach a class. But we are not experts on our students' bodies ever. And, you know, once I became a yoga teacher and then later on a physical therapist, I really reflected back on all those people I had put up on these pedestals in my 20s. And I realized, oh my goodness, I thought they knew everything about everything. Mm-hmm. I would never have questioned, I just thought they were magical unicorn beings. <laughs> and it turns out, They were just people just like me. Yeah, just regular humans. (laughs) Just regular humans. (laughs) Uh,
0: Yeah. So if we look at first step, not doing the thing that hurt us Mm -hmm. or continuing to do the things that make us feel worse, how else do we approach this? Like If we look at, let's say, the stretching aspect of the asana, how do we approach it Mm -hmm. to create safety? And to not create more pain and more dysfunction.
1: Yeah. So stretching is such an interesting topic too, because so many Bendy people love stretching. I'm one of them. It it just feels good. It feels good. <laughs> It feels good. Oh, we just crave it. And one of the reasons that bendy people especially crave stretching is because they feel tight all the time. It's sort of this paradoxical, you know, image. And this one image that I write about in my book comes to me all the time of this gal I was teaching in a teacher training some years ago. And she was, you know, waiting for class to start. And she kind of dropped into this split very easily, just dropped into a full split. But while she was there, she looked at her friend, she's like, oh, I'm so tight. and so it really captures something you know not that she was like making it up and she really felt tight but it points to the feeling of tightness as a sensory experience and not as an objective measure of like i've lost range of motion obviously that wasn't the case for this practitioner Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. but she had the feeling of being tight i.e. uncomfortable, like i.e. I want to stretch, right? And that is such a common experience. And so we need to scratch that tension itch in some way. I prefer to scratch it these days using therapy balls rather than really Mm -hmm. extreme stretching because it gives me that sensory input that I so want. And that bendy bodies actually really need part of the conundrum of the bendy body is that it doesn't get the mechanical sensory input to the brain about what's going on in the body as efficiently or as accurately. And part of that is because of the connective tissue laxity or what I call floppiness. Mm-hmm. It doesn't get stimulate all those kind of mechanical receptors that are sensing stretch and compression and all the things. They don't get stimulated as easily, so they don't send the messages to our brain about how are things going, what's happening. And that is part of what can explain our loss of proprioceptive sense, kind of a little bit poor body awareness among the mm-hmm. bending crowd. And so stretching to end range, where you actually start to feel something, that feels good because it's the feeling of embodiment and we need that. Otherwise we're untethered and we're like, we're just like floating up to the ethers. Yeah. Without that big sensory input, it's hard to know that we have a body or where it is and that's ungrounding and all those things. So it's kind of like, it's this interesting conundrum. So again, Mm -hmm. I really like giving that sensory input without having to go to end range. Another way we can do that though, in our asana practice is to go less far in a stretch, but make it more active because when we contract those muscles that we're also going to feel them more, we feel them more exactly. Mm -hmm. So we can get that kind of input that we're looking for without going to the place where perhaps we're going to dislocate or, you know, have a ligament sprain or something like that.
0: In my experience, what in my body it felt like when I like started to do self-massage and use those massage tools or even go to a massage therapist is that I had the range of motion, but the muscle was tight because the joint was kind of taken over the range of motion. But when I went directly like in the belly of the muscle, it actually felt tight. So I don't know if that I made up in my head or if there's an actual difference there
1: there is. And so, you know, we have to unpack a little bit about what is this word tight? What is tension? And mm-hmm. tension is just anytime you pull on something, it's a pulling force instead of a you know, pushing into compression. Yeah. Right. And so when we stretch, we're lengthening out and we're putting tension on the tissue. That's what stretching is. It's also what contraction does. The contraction of a muscle pulls on its attachment sites and it feels tight. It's like, it's all tight. It's all tension. And in a hypermobile body, when the joints are kind of floppy, we don't have that passive support from our collagen connective tissues. We end up with a muscular system that's like chronically contracting. Muscles are always contracting because now it's their job. They have to compensate, step up to the plate and provide that stability that we need. And we're not getting it from our collagen. So your muscles might be feeling that way because they're always Mm -hmm. contracted.
0: Yes. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah,
1: And for some people, their muscles are so contracted all the time that it actually limits their range of motion. It's really interesting. So sometimes the hypermobility of the joints might be hiding in a person, you know, who, especially I see this more in male bodied people who are a little bit more tightly put together. Maybe they haven't done as much yoga before. But with training over time, their hypermobility will be revealed. You know, they will be the person who kind of starts out not being able to touch their knees or whatever. And then, you know, six months in, they're like doing splits or something like that. Usually it gets revealed, but not always. And sometimes those muscle contraction compensations are really quite severe.
0: Yeah. That explains how my body has been feeling for sure. Totally.
1: That makes yeah, sense. And it's tiring too. It's a piece of the fatigue people get is that, oh my gosh, it's requires so much energy to like mm. hold this body together and yeah. be upright in gravity and move around the world it's exhausting
0: <laughs> totally so we talked about going not quite as deep and getting active in the stretch or yeah. using other tools like self massage to feel that release without opening the joint further anything else
1: As far as stretching, that's what I would describe best way we can use asana for stretching. But the other piece is dynamic asana, I think, has a really important role to play for bendy people because... You know, we could move in and out of postures, which is kind of like the style of yoga that I mostly am into. We just kind of move in and out very slowly of postures and that repetition of movement and that really slow, steady control of movement provides really good proprioception practice and motor control. And that's the name of the game or one of the names of the game for the Bindi mm. practitioner is ability to control movement throughout our range. The amount of movement might be problematic, but what's equally problematic is our inability to smoothly control that movement throughout that range, because our motor control is basically think of it as like joint stability in motion, you know, it's stability in motion. And so when we slow down our asana, even our dynamic styles, that can be so, so helpful.
0: Mm, Yeah, that's a very good point. And then from there, we can also consciously integrate more stability work. We talked about resistant training and progressive loading or like...
1: Very, yes, very yeah. much loading. I think the bendy person is chronically underloaded and it is a problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but a lot of people are intimidated by approaching kind of a resistance training, which makes a lot of sense. And it's important to have guidance you know, from someone who can help and kind of understands the hypermobility piece. But I've seen really good results. I'm doing a lot of work on the side. One of the things I'm doing is working with bendy people on strength training. And they're doing amazing. Yeah, I've got this whole group, but we have to do it differently. So we do really low reps, low rep schemes, but we go heavy, which is relative, but it needs to be hard, heavy load for not many reps with incredibly slow tempo for motor control. Control, yeah. We shorten up the range of motion where needed to develop that motor control because it needs to start at mid-ranges before we spread it out. And then we focus on a great deal of recovery because exercise recovery is sometimes difficult for this population. They get more muscle soreness, they get more fatigue. And so in between every single set We are down on the yoga mat, on therapy balls, and we're rolling and we're resting, um, not standing up, resting, we're lying down and really getting well recovered. And, you know, just with those principles in mind, it's going really well.
0: Wow, that's so interesting. That's a lot of good things to look at mm-hmm. um if people that are listening are like, "Okay, I'm willing to start and give it a try
1: and I, and I think you know there are a couple of people out in the world doing some really cool things bringing resistance into asana practice, and you know when we step back and we look at asana in its role in self study, you know, I mentioned earlier that I think asana absolutely is a tool that can lead us into the goals of yoga. Well, some of those goals have to do with feeling in your body, landing in your body and studying yourself, right? Self-understanding and all those things. And so this is an avenue in and bringing in resistance to asana can help with that. It can help people land in their body. It's not just doing a workout. It's more of a somatic experience thing going on when we bring in some of these tools So when we look at it that way, then you can see, oh my gosh, some of these kind of novel approaches to asana, they aren't just fitnessizing it so much. They're actually helping people find a sense of containment and embodiment so that they can go inward. So I think there's some usefulness there for sure. Absolutely. I -hmm. love that idea of containment
0: and embodiment.
1: Yes. Yeah. We got to know where our boundaries are. And One of the things I love best about resistance, about loading, is that it shows you right away where you are. It just gives you that sensory input. Again, it says, oh, here I am. My brain has to now figure out where my body is because it's under a big load and it's got a big demand on it. Mm -hmm. And so even what I've noticed in this project I'm working on with a bunch of bendy people and strength training is that if they have a hard time connecting to a certain target muscle, like... For hip extension, it's common that people have a hard time connecting with their gluteus maximus, their butt muscles, and they just can't feel it. Their brain can't quite connect. They seem to feel it more when we add a heavier load. Counterintuitive, a little bit, you know. You wouldn't think, oh, well, I can't. I'm not really getting the mechanics of this movement yet. I probably should more weight. But when we do, they're like, okay, now I feel it, and it's like I needed that little bit more of stimulus. Mm-hmm. to really connect the dots inside my body. So
0: interesting. I have in the past needed to put heavier weights, not to feel the muscle, but to actually find the alignment like yeah. of the range, like let's say a squat or something like that. Like it was easier for me to stay in like a good alignment in my squat with heavier weight than with lighter weight.
1: Totally. I mean, Mm. that makes sense from a hypermobility perspective because the load helps your brain understand where you are in space. It gives you that sense of like embodiment and containment. I sort of, I think of it like the earth element in a way, you know, it's heaviness. It's like, ah, here I am. I'm on the (laughs) earth in a body. Wow.
0: (laughs) That's super interesting. I feel like we can talk about this for a long time, but we'll start to wrap it up. If there's anything you'd like listeners to leave with this conversation, like if there's one thing they remember about what we talked about, what would that be?
1: You know, especially if you have a lot of yoga teacher listeners, I imagine um, Mm -hmm. it would be to just like reflect on what are we doing with our yoga practice? What is it for? How is it serving your life? Because it wants to serve your life, wants to make your life more you, more, Mm -hmm. you know, the best you, you can be integrated deeply into your life and into your relationships. And so often we get sucked into yoga as performance and it takes us actually away from those things. And that was the case for me. So anyway, I would just suggest, you know, for all of us to just always reflect on that and make sure that. Yeah. You don't have to be a teacher to have that reflection that's true. That's totally true. Is that, you know, let yoga be that sweet friend that's guiding you home basically. Mm. So get clear on your why. Get clear on your why, you know, as a practitioner and as a teacher, the why will determine how you speak about it. And then your language will just be transformed. And how you will show up for yourself on the mat. Yes. And speak to yourself on the mat. Oh, yes. Yeah.
0: (laughs) I'll put your information in the show notes, of course, but in the meantime, where's the best place for people to find you? If they want to talk about this more with you, they want to see what you offer, they want to get your book, or they just want to say hello and thank you.
1: Yes, yes. I'd love to hear from people. You can find me on Instagram. That's kind of the social media place I hang out, Libby Hinesley PT. You can also check out my website, LibbyHinesley.com. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time today, Libby. Thanks so much for having me. Such a pleasure.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today. If you haven't already done so, leave a review for this episode or the podcast in general on iTunes. It truly, truly helps people find this podcast. And to say thank you, you'll get access to our premium membership for free for a full month. All you have to do is send me an email with your screenshot of your review and we'll get you all set up. You'll find my email in the show notes and any other thing you need about this episode at ericabelanger.com slash 150. Before you go, I just want to say a last thank you to the growing team behind this podcast for their support in making this possible. And this includes all our premium members. Once again, thank you for listening. See you next Monday.